This is The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. David is the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Casa Grande in Casa Grande, Arizona. Not only of the the Pharisees, the church people, the morally educated that miss the truth of it, that on the outside looks so good, but on the inside the reality is is that they have they've missed totally. And we can't find fault in his judgment. That's why he says they're inexcusable. Those of that have been taught the truth, they will stand before God totally inexcusable without any defense that day. We cannot shake our hand at God and say, yeah, but if you would have changed me. In faith, you've been saved through grace and not of works. However, when you're truly saved, you'll have works that show you love Christ. What you do is important to God. When you have sin in your life, there is discipline and correction because of it. Your sin is inexcusable. You've been told and taught you can't shake your hand at God and be mad that He didn't change you. He gave you Jesus Christ so that your inexcusable sin is covered. Now, let what you do show that you love Christ. Now, let's join Pastor David in the book of Romans, chapter 2, verse 1, for part one of our message entitled, Inexcusable. Paul is going to be speaking in this portion of this chapter a tremendous amount of things of the responsibility of work and duty that you and I have as believers. He's not speaking at this portion of a plan of salvation or an issue of salvation, but he is dealing with the fact that this is what ought to be coming out of our lives. In no way does Paul present here the things that we're going to be looking at today and say, if you do these things, you will be saved. What he's saying is, at this point in time, these people are not doing these things because they're not saved. Or, if you are saved, you will be doing these things. Not in order to gain it, but because it's real and true in your life. So, understand that very clear. Paul is very adamant that our salvation is not an issue of works that we do, but it's the very grace of God. Otherwise, we would be the ones who are boasting about our salvation. Otherwise, it would be something that we could say we've done. But again, it's not of works, lest any man should boast. It's the very gift of God. So I want to make that very clear. But the other thing is, Paul does away with that notion of easy believism. In other words, that I can simply say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, and it does not impact my life in any way. And it doesn't change how I deal, uh, not only in my own deepest sense of my own private life, but also how I respond and act with others, with family, with work situations, in every aspect of my life. There is no easy beliefism. In fact, easy beliefism is not Christianity, and we're going to see that. Last week we were in chapter 1, and in chapter 1 we spoke of the situation of those that rejected God completely, the unrighteous, the atheistic ones, the the pagans, and how easy it was for us to be able to look and say, yeah, because they're atheists, well, no wonder the wrath of God's going to come on them. Well, because they're pagans and they go into all this pagan worship, well, of course God's wrath is going to come upon them. But you know what? This week, we're going to be in chapter 2, and we're going to look at another group of people. And this other group of people are the self-righteous, the religious, the moralist. 
Now, this is a more difficult group for you and I to look at because easily we could fall and fit right into this group. As a matter of fact, when we look at the self-righteous, the religious, the moralist, many times the, these here are the ones who think that they've got it all together. And yet the problem is, is they're living their lives and they don't understand that just because they're self-righteous, just because they're religious, just because there's some moral factor to their life, doesn't mean that they're going to stand in the day of judgment. They're the ones that, on the outside, they all look so good. But the reality of who they are comes through when the pressure hits. You can take someone who looks so nice and fine on the outside, and when pressure hits, the reality of what's on the inside comes out. You see, we can put on facades all the time. And we can come and we can be uh, smiley, we can be friendly, we can speak all the right words. We can speak that l- great language called Christianese, you know. We have all the, the right phrases together, but the reality is, is what's inside of us? Is there really a changed creation that's working? And that's what Paul is going to zero in on today. The amazing thing is is that both of these groups, both the self-righteous as well as the unrighteous, the religious as well as the atheistic, we all need the same thing, and that's Jesus Christ. All of them. I don't care how religious a person is. I don't care how self-righteous or moral they are. Outside of Jesus Christ, they are still destined for an eternity in hell. The Word of God declares that. And Paul is very adamant about that fact as he begins this passage as we move into chapter 2. And if you'll follow along with me, I'm going to begin reading in verses 1 and 3 of chapter 2. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. Do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Paul is dealing here with those that we could easily call the morally educated. Those who have perhaps gone to church for a long time. They know right from wrong, and on the outside, that right and wrong works pretty good. In Jesus' day, and in Paul's day, it would have been very similar not only to just the Pharisees, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the church rulers, and we we are the, the synagogue, the religious rulers of the day. Morally educated, but Jesus himself said, you know what, you guys on the outside look really fine, but the problem is you're whitewashed tombs. Nice and clean on the outside, but on the inside filled with dead men's bones. Dead, decaying, and rotting because there's not been any change going on in them. For us today, it could simply be viewed as church people. And I say church people because I don't want to say Christians. Because I believe that there's two different groups here. There is the visible church Those that on any given Sunday or a Saturday might come to a church meeting and be actively involved in a church. They're morally educated and they've heard the message of salvation over and over and over and over again in their lives. Morally, they're educated. And you would look at these people and you would think that, well, it seems like they've got it all together. 
because they're where they should be. But the problem is, is to be morally educated many times becomes a real struggle because now, you know, I, I start hardening my understanding of these things. Paul begins laying out a beautiful legal argument throughout all of Romans. And he first talks about the situation, then he talks about the cause of the situation, and then he deals with the resolution of the situation. So, no less here in this passage than in any other, Paul gives these legal arguments. And the first thing that he declares to them there in verse 1 is that you are inexcusable. Inexcusable. In other words, he's saying you have no defense at all. You who come and stand before God in these situations. You're not going to be able to argue your point at all. You are inexcusable. And he says, whoever you are who judge, and you who judge practice the same things. We're not going to escape the judgment of God in our lives and how easy it is for us to stand in judgment of others when we see their sin. How easy it is for us to stand and, and judge the, the, the unrighteous ones, the, the pagans. But what happens when it's the religious ones? What happens when it's the moral ones? How easy it is to judge others and not look at the own sin in our own life. There's an old saying that warns us against the pot calling the kettle black, isn't there? It speaks about that natural instinct that, that you and I both have to point out the very faults in another person that we ourselves have. Someone has said that we despise our own faults the most when we see them demonstrated in someone else. Reminded of a, a story, it's a poem actually, called The Cookie Thief. A woman was waiting at an airport one night with several long hours before her flight. She hunted for a book in the airport shop and bought a bag of cookies and found a place to drop. She was engrossed in her book, but happened to see that the man beside her, as bold as could be, grabbed a cookie or two from the bag between, which she tried to ignore to avoid a scene. She read and munched cookies and watched the clock as the gutsy cookie thief diminished her stock. She was getting more irritated as the minutes ticked by, thinking, if I wasn't so nice, I'd blacken his eye. With each cookie she took, he took one too. When only one was left, she wondered what he'd do. With a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and he broke it in half. He offered her half as he ate the other. She snatched it from him and thought, Oh, brother, this guy has some nerve and he's also rude. Why, he didn't even show any gratitude. She had never known when she had been so galled and sighed with relief when her flight was called. She gathered her belongings and headed for the gate, refusing to look back on that thieving ingrate. She boarded the plane and sank in her seat, then sought her book, which was almost complete. As she reached in her baggage, she gasped with surprise. There was her bag of cookies in front of her eyes. If Mine are here, she moaned with despair. Then the others were his, and he tried to share. Too late to apologize, she realized with grief that she was the rude one, the ingrate, the thief. How easy it is to see our sin in others. God judges, though, 
with a righteous judgment. Not only of the, the Pharisees, the church people, the morally educated that miss the truth of it, that on the outside looks so good, but on the inside the reality is, is that they have, they've missed totally. And we can't find fault in his judgment. That's why he says they're inexcusable. Those that have been taught the truth, they will stand before God totally inexcusable without any defense that day. We cannot shake our hand at God and say, yeah, but if you would have changed me, or if I would have only known, because they have known, they've been taught, they've come to the understanding over and over and over, and rather than changing on the outside, they allowed their hearts just to grow harder and harder. In verse 4, he tells them that truly they despise or they slight the very goodness of God. The divine goodness that sows favor and mercy and light and law. The one who gives to all that common grace and shows to all that patient endurance. Their hearts become like stone because of that. They despise the things of his character that he continues to show them. And how do they despise it? By not responding to it. Verses 5 through 11 speaks to us about the attitudes of the heart that speak about who we truly are. Beginning in verse 5, uh, let me back up to verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in, in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. He speaks to them about this whole understanding of what they become and what they allow themselves to be. In verse 5, he speaks about the hardness and the impenitent heart. And he uses here both a medical term and a legal term. The hardness of the heart in a medical term. The uh, uh, impenitent heart in a legal term. That word hardness comes from a Greek word, skleros. And in the Greek it means a progressive hardening or a callousness. It comes really to the idea of a morbid hardening of the tissue because it slowly takes place. We get our word sclerosis from it. And when we speak of a medical term like arteriosclerosis, it is that gradual hardening of the arteries. Uh, multiple sclerosis deals with the hardening of the tissue around the brain and on the spine. And when Paul says, your hearts are hardened, or the hardness of your heart, he's not speaking about the fact that suddenly it's turned hard because of an event, but he's talking about over a period of time, because the Word of God had come to them, and they refused to obey it, they refused to follow it, they heard, they listened, did not respond, and over a period of time, their hearts became hardened, to it. Literally, a callus was formed over the heart. No change has taken place. They're receiving 
and just continually hardening their heart. The idea of an impenitent heart means one that is without remorse. In other words, that I can go and I can do things that I know that are against the will of God and it does not disturb me. I'm not broken in my life because I'm in sin, because I've failed to fulfill the desire of my loving Heavenly Father. My heart is impenitent. There's no remorse. I'm not going to repent from that. I just continue on. Can this happen to church people? Yes, it can. The sad part is when it happens to those who declare the name of Jesus Christ as Lord, and yet at the same time, their hearts are hardened. And there's no repentance in their lives. I would tend to think you need to re-examine the reality of your salvation. Whether truly or not you're born again. Or whether you're just trying to be a moral, religious, self-righteous person. In verse 6, he speaks of God rendering to each according to his deeds. And here he makes a declaration that God will render, not not reward these deeds, but He's going to render. Some of them say that uh, He's going to render to each man's deeds. And instead of deeds, He says works or what He has done. But the meaning is is a whole lot more than just that outside actions or the external actions of man. Albert Barnes says this in his commentary on this passage. He says the word deeds that Paul uses is sometimes applied to the external conduct. But it's plain that that's not the simple meaning of it here. It denotes everything connected with conduct, including the acts of the mind and the motives of the individual, the principles as well as that mere external act. So it goes much more than just the outside action. It's the very internal part of the man. And God is going to render to that internal part. Barnes continues on. He says, our word character more aptly expresses it than any single word. It's not true that God will treat men according to their external conduct, but the whole language of the Bible implies that He will judge men according to the whole of their conduct, including their thoughts, their principles, their motives, and that is as they deserve, He says. The character of man comes into play. The external actions of man simply an outflow of the character of a man. So he's not judging us on the symptoms. He's judging us on the reality of the disease that's within us. And that disease is called sin. Now, I know some of you might feel that we're speaking a lot about a works salvation. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to nail that at the very beginning. That's not what I'm speaking about here. But I do know that the Bible makes it very, very clear that there needs to be obedience in our lives if we name the name of Christ. If I say that I am a Christian, then there needs to be a difference within my life in character, and because of that character, then the external flow of my life. And we can call it works, we can call it deeds. We read it throughout Scripture, and some Scripture passages which speak of that we can find very easily. And just a few of them, that you can mark these down and look at them later. But in Psalm 62:12, he says, Also to you, O man, belongs mercy, for thou render to every man according to his work. Proverbs 24:12 says, If thou say, Behold, we knew it not, 
Does not he that ponders the heart consider it? And he that keeps the soul, does he not know it? And shall he not render to every man according to his works? Jeremiah 17.10 I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Are our actions and our activities important to God? Absolutely. Jeremiah 32, 19, one more time. He says, great in counsel and mighty in work. For thine eyes are open upon all the ways of the sons of men to give every one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Is the activity of my life important to God? Yes. Are works important to God? Absolutely. Now, you might say, yeah, but David... All of these are Old Testament, and I'm not in the Old Testament. I'm New Testament. I'm, you know, I'm covered under grace. I'm covered under mercy. Works really is not the issue anymore since the New Covenant. Okay, then I think that there's a few little New Testament verses we can share with you also. We could, first of all, and it's not even on the list, but we could go to Matthew chapter 25 and speak of Jesus speaking to those, again, of the deeds that they've done or the deeds that they've not done, which were a demonstration of their relationship with Him. We could go to Jesus speaking to those, and He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I've asked you to do? And then we could get into the writings of the apostles. Paul writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to what he had done, whether it be good or bad. This is the Bema seat. We talked about that Wednesday night as we've been going through 2 Corinthians. That judgment seat, the good and the bad things that we've done as believers. Galatians 6, verse 7 and 8, Paul again writes, he says, Don't be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. For he that sows to his flesh shall reap of the flesh corruption. But he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. In 2 Timothy, he writes to Timothy about an individual and he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil, but the Lord will reward him according to his works. What we do is important to God. And there's discipline and correction because of it. And finally, in Revelation chapter 22, 12, Jesus himself declares, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. In verse 7, he speaks of some that in for looking for eternal life, they have this patient continuance. They're doing good, and they seek for glory, honor, and immortality. It's a direct opposition to that hardness of heart. So instead of a stone heart, there are those who are really desiring to glorify God in their lives. They have a desire to show their love for Him, and they have a desire to please Him in every action of their life. Verse 8 and 9, 
It talks about those that are self-seeking, those who don't obey the truth. They obey unrighteousness. And that whole idea of self-seeking, the very word there, again, has a connotation to it of almost a, a, a litigious disposition, a, a legal disposition. And I love the words that, that Paul uses there. The unfortunate thing, these are so self-seeking. They're, they're moving more toward unrighteousness and they dare stand before God and say, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And if you don't like that, then do something about it. Well, that's a foolish thing to declare before God. The thing is, is we live in a litigious society right now. People are ready to sue for everything. We hope that today's edition of The Open Word has been a blessing to you. If you live in the Casa Grande, Arizona area, we want to invite you to join us for worship. The messages that you hear on The Open Word are produced from worship services at Calvary Chapel, Casa Grande. Maybe the teaching you heard is exactly what you're looking for in a church. Then please join us. We have services on Saturday evenings and two Sunday morning worship services, as well as other services throughout the week. For more information about service times, including driving directions, log on to TheOpenWord.com and then follow the link to the church website. Now, we want to be sure to tell you how you can get a free copy of this teaching. Simply log on to TheOpenWord.com. Our website has today's message available for you to download. For more information about The Open Word or Calvary Chapel Casa Grande, again, we encourage you to log on to TheOpenWord.com. Although The Open Word teachings are always available to you free of charge, if you'd like to help support this ministry, simply log on to our homepage at TheOpenWord.com and click on the support link to make a secure donation to this teaching ministry. Your donation can be set up as a one-time or regularly scheduled tax-deductible gift to this ministry. From all of us here with the production team, we want to say thank you for tuning in, and may God richly bless you.